One day at three o'clock in the afternoon, Peter and John were on their way into the temple for a prayer meeting. At the same time, there was a man crippled from birth being carried up. Every day he was set down at the temple gate, the one named Beautiful, to beg from those going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked them for money. Peter, with John at his side, looked him straight in the eye and said, Look here, I don't have a nickel to my name, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Peter grabbed the man by the right hand and pulled him up. In an instant, his feet and ankles became firm. He jumped to his feet and walked. Everybody there saw him walking around and praising God. They recognized him as the one who sat begging at the temple gate and rubbed their eyes astonished, scarcely believing what they were seeing. The man threw his arms around Peter and John, ecstatic. All the people ran up to where they were at Solomon's porch to see it for themselves. When Peter saw he had a congregation, he addressed the people. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his son, Jesus. The very one that Pilate called innocent was repudiated. The Holy One was repudiated, the Just One, and in his place you asked for a murderer. No sooner was the author of life killed than God raised him from the dead, and we who stand before you today are his witnesses. While Peter and John were addressing the people, the priests, the chief of the temple police, and some Sadducees came up. Indignant that these upstart apostles were instructing the people and proclaiming that the resurrection from the dead had taken place in Jesus. They arrested them and threw them in jail until morning, for by now it was late in the evening. But many of those who listened had already believed in the message. In round numbers, about 5,000. The next day, a meeting was called in Jerusalem. The rulers, religious leaders, religion scholars, Annas, the chief priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, everybody who was anybody was there. They stood Peter and John in the middle of the room and grilled them. Who put you in charge here? What business do you have doing this? With that, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, let loose. Rulers and leaders of the people, if we have been brought to trial today for helping a sick man and put under investigation regarding this healing, then I'll be completely frank with you. We have nothing to hide. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one killed on a cross, the one God raised from the dead, by means of his name, this man stands before you healthy and whole. Jesus is the stone you masons threw out which is now the cornerstone. Salvation has been given to us through this name, and this is the name that has been given to us. They couldn't take their eyes off them. Peter and John standing there, so confident, so sure of themselves. Their fascination deepened when they realized these two were laymen, 
no training in scripture or formal education. The religious leaders recognized them as companions of Jesus, but with the man right before them, seeing him stand there so upright, so healed, what could they say against that? They sent them out of the room so they could work out a plan. They talked it over. What can we do with these men? By now it's known all over town that a miracle has occurred and that they are behind it. There is no way we can refute that. But so that it doesn't go any further, let's silence them with threats so they won't dare to use Jesus' name ever again with anyone. They called them back and warned them that they were on no account ever again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Whether it's right in God's eyes to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. As for us, there's no question. We can't keep quiet about what we've seen and what we've heard. The religious leaders renewed their threats, but then released them. They couldn't come up with a charge that would stick, that would keep them in jail. The people wouldn't have stood for it. They were all praising God over what had happened.
not sure it was of great comfort, but at least it was preparation. Here, Peter and John all a swirl, and what's happened in this day, in fact, this defining moment as we talked about last week of the early church. And something happens. The text says these leaders were upset, disturbed in some translations. And what is it exactly that they're disturbed by? I'll let you share. I'm, I'm sort of into that whole conversation. What were they disturbed by? Threat of power. Threat of power? Not going by the rules. Not going by the rules? What does the text say? That they were teaching the people the resurrection of Jesus. That's right. It's an interesting group. And it's something sort of informal that happens, sort of a, a pre-trial, if you will, and of gathered people, these religious leaders, elders, which elders were based on social prominence, the scribes based on education, priests based on a family clan. And so they, they gather together, and maybe they put them in jail that night to sort of get their story straight, buy them some more time, decide exactly what they're going to put them on trial for. But it wasn't voting well for them. And the next day when they gathered them together and questioned them, it pivoted around one central question. It's all in the question, which was, by what power or what name did you do this? I find it fascinating that they didn't sort of try to question the miracle itself. This seems to not even be about the healing of the lame man at all. By what power, what name did you do this? In fact, Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, if we're being questioned because of a good deed we did to someone who is sick, well, then let me tell you, actually, let me tell all of you, including all of Israel, that this deed was done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I love it because there's this wonderful verb that means not only to heal, but to save. He says this, This man is standing here healed by the name of Jesus, which could also be heard as this man is standing here saved by the name of Jesus. In fact, all through Acts, this word, this verb in the Greek is used with this double meaning of healing and saving. In fact, he goes on this impassioned speech and says, there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among mortals 
by which we must be saved. And a lot of this language is threaded back from that Joel prophecy we saw in Acts 2. So what I want to do, when we use the word saved, especially in Baptist churches, all kinds of things start popping up for us. So I want you to turn to the person next to you, either to the left or the right or a group of three, and I want you to ask and define what salvation is. Okay? Can you do that? Ordinary. 
Now, we all know that the Spirit moves and blows with authority not based on someone's education, social class, race, sexuality, even beliefs. But the Holy Spirit blows. And they can't, it doesn't fit their category, their container, that box that Michael brought that God was inside of. It didn't fit. And I'm not diminishing good education and training. I think it is wonderful. I think it's needed. I think there's a place for it, for seminary. But we can't lose sight that God's spirit will blow where it will blow. In fact, we must learn from this. That any time we try to sort of tighten the reins on who is going to speak and who's not, we should hear this text loud and clear. For they were stirred up because they didn't have the official documentation. They hadn't gone through the right training. They didn't fit the mold for a good rabbi, perhaps. And they were breaking every code. Who did they think they were? They were ordinary. Thanks be to God that God uses ordinary people. Amen? Amen. In fact, I want to just say right here and now, this is a great text to say, The high priest doesn't always have the final word. And that's part of why in our community of faith, we've tried to elevate the voice of the community, that we come together and talk about scripture before the text. And we reflect and respond and allow the community to speak. It shouldn't always be my voice proclaiming, but rather we speak and proclaim to one another. This is hugely important to me. That we trust the voice and the story and the power of God's spirit in each of us. On the one hand, these men, these leaders were conflicted. They saw the miracle or the result of the miracle. It couldn't be denied, the text says. But at that very moment, I believe the leadership sold their soul. Because that's what happens when you sell your soul. You know something to be true, but you choose to act differently. And it kills you bit by bit, but the risk of letting go of power or control is too great to be authentic to the voice inside you. They for sure weren't going to allow the people who were spreading Jesus' name to keep speaking. And I find it telling and evidence that they believed this name had power. Why else would they want to silence it? 
May this be a word to us. The power in proclamation. The power in speaking our truth and speaking our truth to power. I want to share a parable to you. It's entitled, The Water of Life. The water of life, wishing to make itself known and available upon the face of the earth, bubbled up at a particular place in a refreshing well and flowed without effort or limit. People gathered around the well and drank daily from it and found it to be refreshing and nourishing and healing. And the water of life was happy. But soon, the people were not content to leave things in this paradise state. They became afraid and began trying to possess the water. They began to use words like my water and our water. And then they fenced the well and put locks on the gates and began policing who could drink the water. And furthermore, they began to put the water into containers and to market the water and to sell the water. They claimed ownership of the well and the property around it. It soon became the property of the powerful and elite. The water of life was greatly offended by these actions and became angry, and it ceased to flow at that place. The water left that place and those people and began bubbling up in another location. Meanwhile, those at the first well were so engrossed in their power systems and the management of the well that they did not notice that the water was no longer life-giving, nourishing, and healing. The powerful owners of the well were so busy trying to protect the well and to package and sell the water that they didn't notice that the true power had vanished. But some of the dissatisfied, thirsty souls searched with great courage and located the new well. They gathered around it and were once again nourished. Soon, however, that well also came under the control of a few, and the same fate overtook it. This made the water of life very unhappy and took itself yet to another place. And this has been going on throughout recorded religious history to this very day. Thus ended the parable. God's Spirit will always find a place to break through. It's a matter of we getting to participate in the blessing to bless others. As a church province, we are called to let God hold sway, not our power structures or even clergy. We need to make space for God to speak through the people. Herb said at Free For All, the place where we gather early in the week to talk about the scripture coming up, he said, at the end of the day, are we going to lead, move, and make decisions based on ingrained beliefs or tangible displays of power? But here's, here's one 
little catch to that. It's not enough to be amazed. If you look in the text, the religious leaders actually respond to Peter's boldness with amazement. <coughs> but it's an amazement that doesn't lead to repentance and transformation or salvation. This is the gospel message. Not that we're just dumbfounded by a great display of power. We talked about that last week. It's not just the healing of the man's physical lameness that makes that experience powerful. In fact, the fact that he keeps talking about it is evident, and he goes, praising God. This is evidence that it's about this God working this salvation in and through him. And it's the same for us. It's not enough to witness a great event or outpouring of power. If it stays a physical or sensational experience, that's all it will ever be. It's like hearing a good word proclaimed and then going home like nothing's happened. Or witnessing a great testimony and not sharing it. For the sign and wonder to take place that other piece, that salvific, that saving work has to keep rushing the waters of life. For to me, this is the most powerful part of the story. This week, I had the opportunity to hear someone share their story. And what I found most fascinating is that he couldn't shut up about it. He kept talking more and more and witnessing not just to the events that happened, but to the power of the God who made this happen in his life. We've all been there. We've heard the story. And Peter and John finally get to this point. After being told to be silent, they say, judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Around the tables, eating breakfast on Tuesday at Free For All, Philip said, yes, but there's a catch to that. You have or hear something to be able to share it. At which point Glenda Nexner said, yes, you have to be a companion of Jesus. It says here in verse 14, they were recognized as companions of Jesus. And I believe as companions of Jesus. Walking and talking, experiencing that energizing life, we too will have something to say. 